Welcome, proud members of the present, to another episode of the Primalosophy Podcast. Go to Primalosophy.com for one-on-one wellness coaching. My guest on the podcast today is Locke Kelly. He's a meditation teacher, author of Shift into Freedom and the Way of Effortless Mindfulness, psychotherapist, and founder of the Open Hearted Awareness Institute. In this episode, Locke offers insight on leveling up from deliberate mindfulness to effortless mindfulness. We talk about how we can learn to return and train to remain. We discuss counseling first responders and much more. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Locke. And as always, if you want to support the show, you can do so by clicking subscribe, clicking some stars, and sharing with your friends. Enjoy. It's nice to be here with you, Nick, and everyone else who's listening. Um, Yeah, I was just... uh, bumbling, stumbling, stumbling, ordinary guy going to school in New Jersey. And uh, I think the first um, shift in my consciousness actually was playing sports. So I had a little bit of ADD and dyslexia. Uh, So I knew I was smart, but I couldn't quite get it out on paper. But when I played music and sports, um, I felt like I was myself. And one day I heard on the TV, somebody talking about a quarterback, they said he's got eyes in the back of his head. And I thought, Oh, I kind of know what that means. And I kind of opened my awareness around to feel this kind of spacious 360 degree awareness and then drop into my body. And then I felt like I was a cat. And so I could go out on a sports field and feel this kind of flow consciousness um, that led me to find books like Zen and the Art of Archery. And this led me to my interest in uh, meditation and uh, psychology and um, healing. I also love the book Zen and the Art of Archery, and that can be put to pretty much anything. Zen in the art of football, like you said, or playing an instrument. What is it about these activities or these experiences that when they bring us back to the moment, what's the beauty in that? Yeah, so this is this is a great question because this is kind of the focus of my book, The Way of Effortless Mindfulness. So we, we in our most um, active times, when we do what we love in our free time, Most of us shift out of this small, separate sense of self, which is this thought-based self-consciousness, and we drop into our body and we open to this more spacious and pervasive, interconnected uh, feeling of being, uh, being aware. So we call this flow state or being in the zone. And we think of it as a state, but actually it is our true nature. It is where we can live from, which is called awakened consciousness. And everyone seeks it out. They seek it out just by going walk in nature, playing sports, playing music, listening to music, gardening. Um, You shift from this head to kind of heart mind and you feel like when you're walking in nature, uh, you feel connected to the nature from this larger sense of self. And that is the premise is that that's actually our real 
essence of who we are and that if we know that we can intentionally shift there no matter what we're doing and where we are is the reason that we seek that because we seek oneness yes yeah so this feeling of oneness or unity consciousness or interconnectedness um this awareness based uh in like a continuous intuition um is really what we've known um, as a child before we learn language and then we learn language and we create this thought-based small sense of self that's a highly functioning ego function that becomes an ego identity and what we're doing is just kind of semi-retiring from the ego identity keeping the ego function and then shifting into this more loving easy effortless awareness that um includes our body, includes other people, but its primary dimension is not thought and it's not physical. It's actually spacious and awareness-based. And we know this, but we don't know we know this. <laughs> so, so that's the difference is intentionally, when we're in a flow consciousness, just feeling like you're walking in nature. And then if you were just, while you're doing that, just to curiously let awareness feel back to who am I now or where am I aware from, you would start to enter this effortless mindfulness um, of realizing, oh my God, this is me, this is free of suffering, this is highly functional. There's obviously wisdom that suffering is due to our attachments. And it sounds like one of these attachments that we're trying to detach from is is that of the ego. Why is ego the enemy? And is it better to just befriend it instead of trying to cut it out? Yes. So in some ways, ego is not the enemy. It is the obstacle when the ego function, which is a normal function of memory and, you know, remembering our name and where we live and you know that ego function is is wonderful we don't need to fight it or kill it or it's just that when we identify with it or are attached so that we're only looking from there um, it limits us it closes us down it contracts us um, into this small uh, loop of thought going to feeling going to sensation and that small sense can't really bear a fully emotional, intimate human life. It creates a subject-object feeling of being alienated and separated. So if we keep the functional aspect of memory and my name, and if I like Chinese food, I'll continue to like Chinese food, but shift into this new operating system, which is already installed, which is a bigger flow, open-hearted, uh, that we've all experienced, but we thought it was a state related to like a place in nature or an activity, but it, what if it isn't? What if it is actually something you can intentionally shift out of the small sense of self into this gap of no self and then into this interconnected flow consciousness, which uh, gets to the root of suffering. It relieves that grasping, uh, small, anxious self and lets us feel this essential well-being. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and so we're seeking this state or what you called non-thought or non-self. It's similar in my eyes of thinking about seeking like a six-pack. It's not the acquisition of these muscles or the state of non-thought, but it's the removal of excess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it's not a thing and it's not it's not the the small current self trying to grow up into the big self or try to get some state of mind it's literally that the small current self is just a habit pattern of looping thought and so already within us is this uh, flow consciousness this open-hearted awareness and if we just unhook from thinking and either drop from head to heart mind or open to this more expanded view and then welcome everything from this spacious, um, interconnected feeling of being, um, we will find that it can be done um, in, in a matter of moments. Uh, and this is kind of the advanced meditation practice that's taught throughout all the wisdom traditions that has been kind of hidden from us. And hopefully now I'm myself and a few others are bringing forth into contemporary culture. So what is the difference between deliberate mindfulness and an effortless mindfulness practice? Yeah, so deliberate mindfulness is what most people call mindfulness, uh, because most of the mindfulness teachers are from the Theravada or what's called insight meditation or Vipassana tradition or Zen tradition. And so the practices are kind of deliberately focusing your attention on your breath to give this uh, focus on one simple task. And then when your mind wanders, you bring it back to the simple task and it calms and soothes your mind um, and makes you kind of de-stresses and is relaxing. Mm -hmm. Now in, in the, uh, Tibetan tradition, this is important, but it's only a preliminary practice. You're de-stressing in order to shift to another level of mind and another level of identity. So if we stop at just the preliminary practice, you know, it would be like just, you know, warming up, stretching, but never playing the game. So we go out and stretch before we, you know, play tennis, but then never play tennis. So, so effortless mindfulness is doing what we now know um, from research that seven minutes of deliberate mindfulness will give you the result of calming and focusing. Then from there, if you can then, instead of narrowing your attention, open your awareness to a subtler dimension and then be aware from a kind of open awareness that's not thought-based, that's also inherent within, then you can uh, go to the next level, which is called effortless mindfulness. Right. Now, that's what it was sounding to me like. It's when you level up, you can achieve the more effortless mindfulness. Was there an inflection point where you went from practicing the deliberate form of mindfulness and where you realize, yeah, I don't have to sit for 10 days in a Vipassana retreat. I can achieve this effortlessly in each and every one of my actions. 
Yes. So the first one is is kind of part of my journey, which is that I went in graduate school on a fellowship to Sri Lanka. Uh, I was there for nine months and I did uh, five day retreats, 10 day retreats, 21 day retreats and studied in monasteries and universities uh, the deliberate mindfulness. And so I really enjoyed it and benefited from it. Then I went up north uh, to India to Dharamsala. And it just happened that the Dalai Lama was about to go and teach in France on this direct path tradition in Tibetan Buddhism called Dzogchen. So he was giving a lecture to about a group of 40 of us. Um, and I put my hand up and said, wow, this is sounds great. Where where can I go and who can I study with? And he said, go off to go to Nepal. There's this guy, Toko Ergen Rinpoche. So I changed all my plans, went up to Nepal and this little hut with about eight people and myself. He gave a 15 minute talk and then had us shift our awareness, sending it into the corner of the room and having it look back through the one who sent it. And then what happened was I felt the same way I felt in three minutes as I did at the end of a 10 day retreat. So when you were doing those 10 day retreats and those 21 day retreats, you said that you really enjoyed them. Did you enjoy them during the process or when you would reflect back? Um, I enjoyed them at the end of the process. So, so in other words, that's part of the, the research and, the, and my own experiences that it's really a struggle to try to tame the mind like a wild horse. Mm-hmm. And it takes, you know, minimum like three days to get your uh, your mind to settle down. Um, and then there's like layers of it. But that first level of like exhaustion and pain, dealing with pain in the body and and being taken away by thoughts and, you know, past and future fantasies and and everything is is quite a deliberate and, you know, not so pleasant Uh, process, but uh, eventually uh, the mind settles down and there's kind of this calm abiding. However, the two things the research shows is that a lot of people by just deconstructing the self um, can get flooded by their unconscious material. And the other thing is that when you do this one pointed meditation, you're actually repressing your internal world by doing this task. It's what's called the default mode network of the brain that gets repressed. So you feel calm while you're on the cushion, but you can't um, carry that forward and remain as calm as soon as you're in the world. Mm -hmm. Whereas this effortless mindfulness, when you shift into this awareness that's equally aware inside and out, you're balancing your default mode and your task mode network and you feel this kind of seamless uh, unity or oneness that's like the flow state. You're, you're in your body, you're, everything slows down, you're in the now, and you're able to feel calm and highly functional. So it's really the research is showing that this effortless mindfulness, though advanced, is just as simple to access and is you know, what you really need to live from. It's a more practical version. 
It's like yes. we, we look for meaning only in work and we look for mindfulness and meditation in a quiet room or in solitude or on these retreats when both can be found in in every moment. And that, that's playing devil's advocate here. That's that's mm. what the argument would be is, mm -hmm. OK, you can cultivate that on a comfy cushion. But what happens in times of pure chaos? That's right. Yeah. So what we're doing in effortless mindfulness is you're shifting into this greater capacity um, this greater dimension of self, which um, gives you more space so that when difficult emotions or trauma-based or shame-based feelings or angry protector parts of yourself arise, you are bigger than they are. They don't take you over, or when they take you over, you have the resiliency to be able to shift out and into this uh, loving, welcoming presence that is with uh, terror or with rage or with even the biggest emotions rather than being taken over by them or um, being in a kind of a detached witness position of mindfulness. You're actually in this flow of this greater ocean of embracing awareness um, that's healing and liberating of um, these emotional contents, which, uh, you know, before seemed to be unbearable. Now, when we are judging the judger, it sounds like, is this taking mm -hmm. it one step beyond that? Yes. So, you know, there's judging the judger, and then there's uh, being mindful of, of judgment, the judging mind. And what this is, so that's kind of from mindfulness. You can be aware of your thoughts and your feelings and your sensations or the judging mind. And then you're still in this point of view or this meditator that's detached observer. And what we do in effortless mindfulness is open even further to see who's behind the camera. Like we're looking from this point of view, but we open out to a more spacious uh, view and then feel like that awareness is interconnected and has a feeling of unity or oneness with the judge. So there's kind of not a, a detached feeling. There's more of a feeling of embracing the judge and understanding the judge without letting it take over, but without leaving it. Mm -hmm. So this, this is kind of a, a next stage. Yeah, I think embracing is a key word there. Now, not everyone is going to have access to these advanced practitioners that you mentioned, but mm -hmm. tell me more about the the pointing out instructions practice when it opened mm -hmm. your eyes. Yeah, so um, so this is the thing is that that you know explaining it um, or talking about it, it's you know it's unique and it's new. It's a little unusual, so it sounds intellectual or it sounds a little advanced or esoteric but actually it's experiential and having taught both deliberate mindfulness and this advanced effortless mindfulness they take the same amount of time to learn it's just that the initial feeling experiential feeling of unhooking awareness from thought having it step back and then drop down to know your jaw from within your jaw, to know your throat from within your throat, and then to drop 
into your heart mind and then to open to this field of spacious awareness that's you're now aware from that's both outside and within that that once you learn how to do that that's the pointing out is the is that rather than being aware of the content of thoughts feelings and sensations which people could do even as they're listening just be aware of your thoughts emotions sensations and then just simply relax or rest or be curious back to what's aware of those sensations that are coming and going. So you're aware of the sensations and then just feel what's aware, where are you aware from of thoughts and just keep opening to that which is aware that has not one location but is aware from everywhere, both within and all around, and then get a feeling for that holistic ocean of awareness that's arising as your thoughts, feelings, and sensations. When we drop down into the heart-mind, why yeah. does that equate to spreading a sort of loving-kindness? Yeah, so the, the premise here, rather than intentionally uh, wishing or imagining or kind of creating positive thoughts to replace negative thoughts, when you shift out of this small cloud of your mind and step out into the sky or drop down into the heart space, what arises is a natural compassion and a natural loving kindness that doesn't have to be deliberately created, you'll find that that's just the view from this level of mind. Now, does that just come along, you know, hand in hand with presence, and we're not thinking about, you know, our biases and, and notions? Yeah, so so this is the thing is that um, currently, we're identified with this habit of thought referencing, little feeling of me, that uh, for most people, if you feel it now, you can feel it seems to be located in the middle of your head looking out of your eyes. Mm -hmm. So that feeling we think of as, oh, that's just me. I'm just aware from my mind. or, But that's just one location. So when you let that thinking just be a natural function and don't, orient there and instead let awareness drop from head to heart space. Now, all of thought is available like it's been poured back into this field. And you're at home, resting at home in your heart. And it's almost like you're using Wi Fi to the office of your head. So it's coming down to your heart mind. And the view from heart mind is not uh, judgmental or mental. It's using thought as a tool when needed, but otherwise it has a kind of feeling of being interconnected and peaceful, open-hearted, and able to respond um, the way a Tai Chi master could respond. So 
there's an alertness, there's an interconnection, and the ability to use thought or move your hand. But then when you let your hand rest and let your thinking rest, you discover peace of mind. We get glimpses of this sort of peace of mind or peace from mind. You you mentioned the, the rubber band effect where mm-hmm. we get it and then we lose it. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's definitely, it. you know, kind of what I've discovered after these 20 years or so of, of working with thousands of students is that awakening is kind of the next natural stage of human development. So it is like a developmental stage. At first, you're kind of a teenager and you're learning to be a young adult. But if you do practice regularly, you do shift into this uh, into this new normal of awareness-based, open-hearted um, way of living in a flow that becomes more natural and takes some tuning. You'll go back you know, with a rubber band effect back when, especially when you're triggered by difficult situations, back to this protective parts of yourself or this manager or this scared part. And then you'll just notice it and then you'll be able to intentionally learn to return and then you train to remain at home and, and then it becomes natural. So you end up, you know, you wake up, you open your eyes and after years of practice, you are now in this new default awake consciousness. Learn to return and train to remain. Have you said that before? Yes. <laughs> okay, I was going to say that's some unintentional rhyming there, Locke. So this, this, this practice is ideal for our contemporary Western culture, our busy, driven yep. culture, in that it demonstrates that awakening is possible for anyone without having to go to a certain place it doesn't we're not concerned about set and setting but now you're talking to a lot of first responders here where if if we can demonstrate this and you know firefighters and police when they're out there Mm. in these hectic situations obviously we can prove its effectiveness yes i i i you know know first responders and i could share a little about being a first responder at 9 11. my wife and i went down at 6 a.m that next morning and having known first responders, many of them do this and are able to shift into this calmer flow consciousness, awake consciousness, where they're optimally relaxed, interconnected, and heroic in some ways, um, and non-reactive in the most difficult situations. Mm-hmm. So this is this is something that most of them do, and almost um, are have this natural open-hearted awareness, which is serving others because they know that this is the meaning of life: is to to live from this more compassionate connection, as if everyone in the community is their family or their brother and sister or themselves, really. And so um, they're willing to respond. They go toward the the crisis rather than away from it. And um, I know that this happened for me. My wife, we went down uh, to the uh, you know to the um, ground zero and walked around and were there responding 
uh, and doing counseling for the first responders. And so I met a lot of them. And then we created um, groups for them and taught them some of this meditation and did some grief counseling. Um, so, you know, I know that they know what this is and this is the intentional way to optimally function as a first responder is from this more open-hearted flow consciousness. I think one thing that we have to mention is that first responders have, with experience, comes the ability to detach from emotions and outcome. How important is that? Yeah, so the interesting thing is that if you just do a deliberate mindfulness version of detaching from emotions, um, you know, kind of like the traditional uh, caricature of a doctor who, you know, is in a ER, but is kind of mentally detached and like dealing with everything rationally, um, that can lead to repressed emotions. So this way of doing it is uh, shifting, detaching from the horror or the difficulty of the situation or the potential danger and then coming into this unity or oneness or flow where you feel compassionate and you're able to make wise choices um, in the moment that's for the best of yourself and for others. Um, but then you're able to process the emotion of it later on with others so that you don't um, detach uh, a as a way to kind of dissociate. It's one thing to detach from emotion when when you want to be able to empathize with your yeah. community or with the emergency at hand and not sympathize because you don't want to put yourself in their shoes, but you want to be able to recognize what's going on. Yes, that's right. And it's interesting. There's been recent research that when people empathize, um, there's a point when you empathize, then you either go to a kind of detached dissociation or you go to over-empathizing where you go to burnout or you go to what they call compassion with a capital C, which is empathetic. And I think what they're talking about is this effortless mindfulness. So you go to this natural open-hearted awareness, you're able to continue to empathize, but you don't um, take on the energy of the person who's suffering. You let it kind of go through you, you understand, but you don't uh, let the hot potato kind of take you, take you over or you don't have to shut down around them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that sounds like effortless mindfulness could be a great solution for burnout and for health practitioners mm -hmm. and, and first responders. So switching gears here, something that really resonated with me was when you said, because we don't always know that the source of our joy and freedom is already available to us, we might later say, I missed that incredible feeling I had while I was hiking last week. Mm -hmm. I've, and I personally have said this after every vacation, I'll have to wait until my next vacation to return to that feeling. Yet, if we try to recreate an experience by doing the same activity again, our expectation may keep us from relaxing the seeking mind enough to allow effortless mindfulness to be revealed. So this is where we can practice what you call the memory door. Mm -hmm. Yes. So, um, so the key to that is, um, 
that the set and setting of the place, like a vacation or hiking with friends or something, takes you up a mountain with your friends, you get to the top, you look out over the beautiful vista, you see, feel your connection to others, to nature, and then you relax the seeking mind and you open to this interconnected nature. So then we associate it with the place and the event and the people. And what I'm saying is that can be intentionally done on the subway in New York City. So in other words, that identity and level of mind that's achieved through the set and setting of a place or an event can be, once you learn the principles of how to access that, that feeling of being and that true nature that sees things from that view is already inherent within us. And so how do we shift into that? Um, and there's a bunch of practices in the book, The Way of Effortless Mindfulness, and one of them is the memory door, which would be just to really recreate in your mind the memory of that situation, that place, that time, the smells, the sounds, let yourself feel that, and then slowly let go of the visual imagination, the let go of the smell and the sense, but keep the feeling of who you were then that you are now. We often feel like our, that was our best self during that yes. moment, and we want to recreate that. Yeah, and it was our best self. It wasn't just um, a regular self having a nice time or having a nice feeling. It was a shift of identity and a shift of mind. And so if that's true, then the question is, can we shift our mind and our identity intentionally anywhere, anytime? And that's what this whole um, approach is about is saying it says yes so that you can feel the way you feel on vacation uh, all the time now i like one thing that you mentioned that we should incorporate when we are having drawing on those memories is to include these senses not just replaying it in our heads yes that's right so really go there and let the let yourself be completely there and let go um, into all the senses and then let go of the imagination and then when you open your eyes here from this same sense of identity, include your senses here and now, and then you'll feel the same way you felt there that it's that's not dependent on external circumstances. Now, is the reason that we're chasing those memories because at that time we were able to relax the problem solver and see that the moment was perfect without adding a narrative? Yeah. Uh, so... We, we just found a way through activity and through place and set and setting um, to act, to walk through like a door um, of preliminary, like a preliminary practice of relaxing and then letting go and then realizing who we are. But because of the preliminary practice, we think it has to do with the location in nature, or even 
the meditation cushion or um, the retreat center or vacation spot. But can you relax the, so one of the simple um, practices I do is just an inquiry because the um, mental thought-based habit of identity, the seeker is trying to solve the problem of happiness of self. It's just trying to search anywhere it can within its own thought-based knowing to solve the problem of self. So if those who are listening were just to ask themselves and then look with awareness, what's here now? when there's no problem to solve on the level of identity. Can you answer that in your own words? Well, so the thing is, it's an inquiry. So if you literally feel it and then do it, so this is kind of a pointing instruction. So it just takes a minute or so. But if people were just, I know radio silence is sometimes not often, but if people were just to listen and then feel and just stay a minute, then they would come up with, their own sense of feeling. So just inquiring, what's here now when there's no problem to solve on the level of identity? You don't go to thought and don't go to sleep. I want to say laughter. <laughs> yes, there you go. So something goes into this joy, right? Joy of being. Now that joy is what we're, what it ultimately is what we're after. Yes. On the other side of that is pain and pain is a normal part of human life. It helps us survive. But for those experiencing physical chronic pain, can we use your practice for pain relief? Yes. As a matter of fact, I have a chapter in the book called the effortless mindfulness approach to pain relief. So what it does is Effortless mindfulness goes to the root of mental suffering, emotional suffering, existential suffering, and also can be applied to physical chronic pain. Um, so it's a way that takes a little learning how to do it. But the first thing is that you're, um, you're not suffering about suffering. And the second thing is that you actually learn how to, rather than having the pain signal, let's say in your, let's say you had arthritis in your hand. So you know, you've checked it out medically, you know that it's chronic, but you don't want to take too much medication. If you take, it's, so pain is a signal from your hand, sending a signal up to your little manager in your head, this little self-center, and it just keeps calling, check this out, check this out, check this out. There could be a problem. Maybe there's a knife in your hand, some danger, check it out. And if you unhook awareness from thought and have it travel down and go directly into your hand and then feel your that location and know that there's no a threat and then open so that the pain signal goes to this more spacious mind rather than to the small self. The pain signal goes from eight down to two. 
in terms of most people's experience. Thank you for sharing that. So is there a final boss or internal struggle in your life that remains to be defeated? I mean, it's, you know, this, this path is kind of um, direct realization and gradual unfolding. So there's these main practices, these small glimpses many times of the day, which you can learn, you know, through uh, my book or the some YouTubes. And then there's kind of a continual waking up and growing up and healing up and showing up. So it just continues to liberate like earlier repressed content so that um, there's continual growth. So this is this is one way to bring more loving awareness, kindness, more meaning to our lives by living moment to moment and, and being fully engaged. Now, I don't think we can prepare for death, but if it is possible, is by being completely immersed in the present until the present is no longer. What would your version of that look like? I mean, that's very similar um, that there's if you're in the eternal now in this kind of timeless presence, then there's kind of a recognition that there's both kind of a precious human birth that feels like, oh, I was born in this human body and this human body will die. And simultaneously, there's this unborn or deathless, timeless presence that's in this eternal now that was never born and will never die and is also essentially who I am. So it's not not denying one or the other, but when you shift into this view of the well-being of the all-at-onceness of now, um, there's a loss of the drive from the conditioning of your body-mind as if that's all you are. And so you get relief and a kind of... A, you know, ability to just take the next breath and time comes and goes and no one knows what will happen next or when, but there's this kind of safety and well-being that gives relief. Is there a book on your shelf right now that you would like to share with us? <clears throat> well, probably, you know, the books from my teachers. So there's one from... Uh, this teacher, Toku Ergen Rinpoche, it's called Rainbow Painting. So it explains kind of in a little more traditional Tibetan language what I write about in my book, um, The Way of Effortless Mindfulness. Um, it doesn't give the practices, but it gives the, you know, the description of this. If you could have a drink with anyone in history, who would you choose and why? <laughs> what kind of drink am I? <laughs> Your preferred drink. <laughs> preferred drink. Okay. Um, yeah, that's a great question. Um, probably someone like very like Lao Tzu or somebody like that. Somebody very natural and ancient and wise, whose culture I didn't know that well, and who just was, you know, emanating this well-being. What are your daily non-negotiables? Things that no matter what will always be done. Yeah, so 
the the non-negotiables are to shift into this uh, already awake consciousness through small glimpses and then welcome everything that's happening just as it is. And the other is to let my tell my wife that I love her. So I really enjoyed the way of effortless mindfulness. Where else should people go if they want to learn more about you and to keep up with what you're doing? Yeah, so probably the easiest way is to go to my website, which is www.lockkelly.org, L-O-C-H-K-E-L-L-Y. And you'll find a link to my book. And there's some free videos and audios when you uh, go to the book page there. And then uh, events that you're welcome to come to and free uh, YouTube and other links like that. Awesome. All right, Locke. Well, this was a very fun conversation. Thank you so much for being on my show today, man. Thanks, Nick. Really great to meet you. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to follow me on social media at Primalosophy. And if you want to subscribe to my weekly newsletter, Sunday Goods, you can find the link in the show notes. Shikoba.